0: It's Monday. That must mean that it's time for another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and with me today is...
1: Andy Alexander.
0: It's lovely to have you here, Andy, and to share after 360 episodes, our very first episode about Jainism. Can you tell us a little bit about the interview that we're hearing today?
1: Yes. Our guest, Ellen Goff, offers a fantastic introduction to Jainism. She explores the ways in which the Jain ascetic Path to liberation is generally seen in opposition to tantric paths to liberation. But our guest today explores how mantra can be understood as a tantric ritual practice. It was a very fascinating look at the ways in which certain practices and traditions are considered and classified as tantric. And she proposes that through this tantricization, these traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, which are generally understood to be separate and distinct from one another, we're able to collapse those categories and learn more about the ways in which ritual is used to help create and recreate group identities.
0: I can't wait. Let's listen in.
1: Hi, I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is Dr. Ellen Goth, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Emory University. Professor Goff received her Ph.D. in Asian Religions from Yale University, and her work focuses primarily on Jainism. In 2020, Professor Goff received a Fulbright Senior Research Fellowship, which will allow her to do research on Jain festivals and astrology. Congratulations! But today, we are here to discuss your forthcoming book, Making a Mantra, Tantric Ritual and Renunciation on the Jain Path to Liberation, which will be available in June 2021, now, I believe that you have been a long time and avid listener of the Religious Studies Project, but this is your first appearance on our podcast, so we are very glad to have you here. Thank you so, so much for joining us.
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'll say I listened to this regularly when I was on the job market to get an understanding of the field of religious studies, and it was very helpful. So thanks for what uh, you do.
1: <laughs> well, we are very glad to hear that. We are glad that it's a useful resource to everyone. We are here today having our very first official podcast on Jainism. And so I'm hoping that before we get too far along in the conversation, you could give our listeners a little background on Jain studies as a field and common or sort of popular conversations and discourses taking place, uh, especially with regard to Tantra and Mantra, because I I, I know that these are two terms that you focus on in your book? And so seeing sort of what's already happening in the field before we, we dive in too deep with our discussions.
2: Right. Sure. Yeah. I'll start with Jainism. I guess to introduce the field of Jainism, it's a big question, but what I can do is maybe tell my own story about how I learned about Jainism. I learned about Jainism first at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in an intro course. Intro to South Asian religions. And the course was trying to do a lot, you know, South Asian religions is a huge topic. So we only had, I think, one day on Jainism. And I think what I found is it was introduced in a way that it's often introduced um, in, in America, in that we learned about it in our section on renunciatory traditions. So typically in an Intro to South Asians course, you start with the Vedas, you start with learning about these Brahminical traditions that dominated. Um, in north india um, in you know from let's say 1200 BCE onwards and that really focused on the power of the priestly caste the brahmins and the importance of the fire sacrifice that they performed making offerings to the gods to maintain prosperity in the world okay so that's what you get you know intro and then you have your section on renunciatory traditions that rejected these brahmanical traditions and you get an intro to buddhism primarily and I think Jainism often comes in there and that's what Uh, My experience was Jainism was introduced as a strictly ascetic tradition that rejected the Vedas, rejected Brahminical authority in the same way um, Buddhists did. Said making these sacrifices to the gods is completely useless because it just ensures that you're going to reincarnate over and over and over again and suffer. What you have to do is you have to. Escape the material world, you have to become a renunciant, you have to renounce the world, um, you have to take the vows of a mendicant and in that way, Buddhism and Jainism are quite similar. and in, and so that was my experience when I was taking this intro to South Asian religions is that's how Jainism was introduced to me and then we never really followed up later with what happened whatever happened to Jainism. It was put in dialogue with Buddhism as Buddhism really strict other. Do you know the, I'm sure you know, the biography of the Buddha? I'm sure you read the biography of the Buddha.
1: Yes, yes.
2: Right. So often in classrooms, people experience, students will experience Jains through the texts of other religious traditions. So there's this famous account in the story of the Buddha where, you know, he's a prince and he leaves the palace and he tries all these meditational programs to try to achieve enlightenment. And the first one he does is he fasts, hardcore, gets really skinny, becomes emaciated. There are famous sculptures of the emaciated Buddha. And it's often said, oh, well, that's the Jain path. That's the path of extreme austerities. The Buddha took the middle way. He rejected the path of extreme austerities. He rejected the path of extreme wealth and he, and he took the middle way. So yeah, that's what I said. would say that Historically, of course, things are changing now, but uh, historically, Jainism has been introduced in that way. It is very similar to Buddhism. It did emerge in the 5th century BCE in North India. The founder of Jainism was an ascetic like like the Buddha, a contemporary of the Buddha named Mahavira. And so they did have very similar teachings. A key distinction, though, I should say, between Buddhism and Jainism is Jains believe in an eternal soul. In a way, of course, Buddhists reject the idea of an internal soul. Um, Jains believe that the universe is uncreated and there are infinite number of souls in the universe, but they all are identical and they all contain infinite knowledge, infinite bliss, infinite perception, and infinite power. And they're in all types of living beings. So Jains divide the universe into four types of birth placements. we got the gods. We have the plants and animals, we have humans, and we have the hell beings, and we're just cycling, we're just reincarnating amongst all these different birth placements, <laughs> um, our souls are. Um, and why are we doing that? Because of karma, which is, I mean, karma literally means action, but in the Jain perception of things, karma is a physical substance that attaches to your soul every time you act. So i am talking now as we're doing this podcast. Tons of karma is being attached to my soul and it's obscuring my infinite knowledge, infinite bliss, infinite power. I could be blissed out, but I'm not because I'm, I'm acting. Mm -hmm. There are different types of karma. Of course, there's good karma. There's bad karma. And if I do good things, hopefully I'm getting some good karma right now because I'm talking about Jainism and that will maybe ensure that I have a better birthplace. I have a really good birth placement right now as a human, but maybe I can become a God in my next life or something like that. But if I do um, you know violent acts, I will be reborn as a hell being or something like this. But so there are different types of karma, but the ultimate goal in Jainism is to destroy all karma so that you just become a pure soul and you shoot to the top of the universe, um, where you will remain forever with all other um, liberated souls. You won't merge into one, as some Indic traditions maintain. You will remain. Um, distinct from other souls, but you will be blessed out. You'll have infinite knowledge, infinite bliss, infinite power, and you'll just remain there forever. That's the goal of a Jain, is to become a liberated soul. So
1: in in your book, you are looking at these terms, Tantra and Mantra, and sort of their connection to karma and the Jain path of liberation. Could you give us a little background on how these terms are typically understood within Jain studies? And then tell us a little bit about where your work makes an intervention in those discourses. In intros to Jainism and studies of
2: Jainism, this word tantra has not really been examined. The so-called tantric path to liberation and the ascetic path to liberation in scholarship has been put in opposition to one another. Um, I think that in popular discourse, Tantra is often associated... Well, I ask my students this when I'm introducing tantra in the classroom. I say, what do you think of when you think of uh, tantra? And no one says anything. I want them to say sex. I want them to say it's sex. And I don't know if they don't say it because they don't think of sex or they just don't want to say sex to a professor, but it has been in popular you know, Staying has eight hour long tantric sex sessions and all this. In popular discourse, it has been associated with these antinomian activities. Um, so right. because of that, um, because Jainism has been posited as this strict ascetic liberation in which celibacy and becoming a monk is required for liberation, they've been put in opposition to one another. I mean, tantra is such a problematic term. Where do I start with this? It's probably one of the most Contested categories in Asian religions, but basically it comes from a category of texts, tantras, in Buddhism and Hinduism. There are tons of different categories of text genres of text, sutras, Purana, Veda, etc. And in and the tantras, these texts that emerge maybe from the fifth century CE in the medieval period, they describe the um, beliefs and practices of various cults to deities that, like Jainism and Buddhism and the ascetic traditions, reject um, Brahminical understandings of the proper way to act, reject the idea of Brahminical purity and Brahminical hierarchy, and posit a path to liberation in which mantras destroy um, karma. So you initiate into the tradition, you receive a mantra from your guru um, at your initiation, this diagramic representation of your tradition, um, like a mandala, uh, these geometric diagrams will be constructed. So you initiate into the tradition. Um, and then after you're initiated into the tradition, you can use the mantras that are imparted to you upon your initiation to continue to destroy the karma uh, on a daily basis. And that's the so-called tantric path to liberation. The foundation is mantras destroy karma. whereas um, Ascetic path deliberation, the Jaina path deliberation, has been posited as one of asceticism, where you fast, you keep celibate, you perform very difficult acts of asceticism, study, meditation, in order to destroy karma. So that's why um, studies of Tantra often don't me- mention Jainism, and studies of Jainism don't often um, mention Tantra in that way.
1: Given that sort of breakdown, how is your book, Making a Mantra, tackling those understandings and conversations?
2: So when we actually look at the texts and practices of Jainism, we see that they use mantras a lot to destroy karma in ways that have been deemed tantric in scholarship on uh, tantra meaning they use, they are imparted monks, nuns, mendicants, in Jainism are indeed imparted mantras upon their initiation that are said to destroy karma, that are said to ensure liberation. They do construct these diagrams, these mandalas upon their initiations. And they do regularly, monks, mendicants, lay people, regularly use um, mantras in meditative practices, in ritual practices, to destroy karma. So we, if we when we look at the practices, they, they are performing these so-called tantric practices. And when I say tantric practices, I mean this specific type of initiation in which a mantra is imparted and a mandala is constructed, and then specific type of daily meditational practices that have been outlined by a bunch of smart scholars. The leader in the field of tantric studies right now is Alexis Anderson, who is retired from Oxford. He's trained a number of really brilliant students, really prolific, brilliant students who primarily focus on so-called Shaiva Tantric traditions. And they and others have defined Tantric meditation in, in a certain way. And there are a number of steps that are involved in Tantric meditation. The first being the purification of the body, through the use of mantras, bhuta rites, where you place mantras on your body to purify your body. And then the use of mantras to propitiate the god of your tantric tradition, be it Shiva, Buddha, Vishnu. And then also the deification of the body, again, via um, mantras. So when we look at Jain texts, Jains are doing this. So what to do? Right. What to do about that?
1: I, I want to draw attention to a process in, in your own sort of methodology for the book, where you talk about Catherine Bell's use of ritualization, and and you propose tantricization as a way to address the, the sort of discrepancy that you see in these uh, processes for, you know, the Jain path to liberation. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you understand that to work and the work it's doing for you, you know, within this text, but also in the field.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I use this term tantrization. I mean, I've seen other people use um, similar terms, tantrification. I use tantrization as you say, because I want to engage with Catherine Bell's idea of ritualization. I do it to complicate this category of tantra as something that is coherent that you can um, point to. I want to make the shift that Bell makes toward the process of creating something that is Tantric. So in se- if you want to define a category, let's say you want to define the category Tantra, you don't want to start with something that's already called Tantric. You don't want to start, so you don't want to start with a person who's always, already called a Tantric. You don't want to start with a text that's already called um, Tantric, you want to start with something outside of the category and see how that thing changes when it interacts with the category, the process of what I call tantricization. So that's why Jainism is really ideal to use to assess this category of tantra, because yeah, Jains have never been categorized as tantrics in the way that Shaivas, Vaishnavas, Buddhists, Really have so what I do is I also draw upon uh, David Germano's work. I think he's he's coined this term, non-traditional developmental history, whereby the structuring um, component of research is not something you would typically start with, like a text or a time period or a person or a religious tradition or a concept such as modernity or secularism or tantra but instead is a single ritual component. So start with something random, like blue socks. If you wanna understand the formation of Tantra or any other complicated category of analysis in religious studies, start with something completely removed with that and see how it changes when it interacts with that category. So that's what I'm trying to do with the And through that process, we see that these practices involving mantras that destroy karma, and lead a practitioner toward liberation, emerge naturally from the ascetic path to liberation. So we should not put them in opposition. When we look at a single ritual component, and in my book, I look at um, this litany, uh, this 44 line litany of praises to ascetics who have achieved superhuman powers. Like they have the ability to fly, they have clairvoyance, they have the ability to cure people with their bodily fluids. They have all sorts of superhuman powers that they've developed because our souls have infinite power. So when you destroy some karma that's blocking that infinite power, these superhuman powers emerge. So there's this litany in this text, the Shatkan Dadam, um, this Prakrit litany, the language of the Jain scriptures, that it just praises to these ascetics. And I use that as my focus throughout the book. And I look at how this, this praise that is initially not called a mantra, not used in so-called tantric rites of meditation initiation, how it changes, how its interpretation changes when it begins to be a mantra of initiation, a mantra that's inscribed on these mandalas that are used in tantric meditation. And that I think can help us understand what Jains are, And it also can help us understand this category of Tantra, because if Jain ascetics, if celibate monks are performing these practices that have been named as Tantric, that means that Tantra can't refer to antinomian rites. It can't refer to sex and wine drinking. It also means that it can't refer to a tradition as a whole. I would not call Jainism a Tantric tradition. And that has been the language of the field. There are these Tantric traditions. Shiva Siddhanta, Bancharatra, various sects in Buddhism are Tantric traditions as a whole. Instead, it has to only refer to ritual components. A certain way of using ritual components, contextualized. I hope that makes sense. That's what I'm trying to do with tantricization. Look at the process by which a component that is not initially called Tantric then becomes tantric.
1: How does this focus on a single ritual component and in this case the appearance of this litany throughout Indian history help us to create new questions and reach new insights in the study of Indian religious traditions?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think one way it can bring a new perspective is it shies away from this periodization of History, based on models of kingship. Sometimes the history of India is written in terms of kingly patronage. So we have uh, the medieval period from the sixth century to the thirteenth century. That's been called the so-called Shiva Age by Alexis Sanderson in a famous monograph-length uh, book chapter, because um, it was in this period that kings adopted. Shaivism, and then um, promoted Shaivism. There's a lot of truth in that. But then we get to the 13th century and we have the period of Muslim rule. And then we have 19th century when we have British rule and we have engagements with colonial authorities and foreigners. And often when we think about the history of religions, we think in those terms. So when we're analyzing our data, we think, oh, this is the Shaiva age. So this development of this ritual practice emerged because of Shaivism. Or this development of this ritual practice or belief emerged because of oh, Muslim rule. Or this development <laughs> emerged because of British rule. And if we go beyond that and look at something else again outside of those categories, we don't start the project with the colonial period. You don't start the project with the Shaiva age. Then again, we can see how. While there's a lot of truth, I'm not saying that the British and Europeans didn't influence the formation of religions on the subcontinent, but we can also see other things that are happening. I can give a, an example. So the the Shaiva age has also been called the Tantric age. This is the period where these tantric practices really, really flourished. But in Jainism, a lot of the manuals that outline these meditative rites, these initiatory rites, begin to be composed from the 13th century onwards, like at the end of the so-called tantric age. And I found that because I didn't structure it yet in terms of the tantric age, I structured it in terms of this, this litany. And I'm starting to see my litany discussed a lot from the 13th century onwards. And it seems to be the case that it's in this period that there's this fracturing of different mendicant communities. And they all were looking to gain lay patronage by projecting themselves as these powerful leaders of their communities. So it's in that period where we begin to see a lot of manuals to discuss how you impart the mantra to a monk, how the monk uses it in daily ritual, how all these monks defeat all their competing mendicant lineages, Jain mendicant lineages, and then also non-mendicants. And so we have a flourishing, I think because of the fracturing of the Jain mendicant community in this period and their desire not for kingly patronage necessarily, but for lay patronage from wealthy Jain mendicants. It's also important to note that Jains are peripatetic. Jain monks, you got to move every few days. So you need a lot of temples where you can stay. You need a lot of lay people helping you out. And when you can develop This reputation for healing that comes with the mantra, for imparting of miracles that comes with the mantra, you'll gain a, a lay following. Same thing happens. So we have this flourishing from 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century. We have a bunch of these manuals. And then we also have a bunch of these manuals in the 20th and 21st century. There's kind of a revival of this use of the mantra that I look at in these meditative practices. And it seems to be. The same thing that's happening. There's an increased splintering of mendicant lineages, and they're using the mantra and these meditative practices to gain lay patronage. On the one hand, if we were looking at it through the framework of colonial rule, we think, oh, there's this sort of Protestantization of Jainism in the 19th, 20th, 21st century, so that they they rid themselves. There's this focus. There was this translation project in the 19th century. Of the early so-called canonical texts. We had important German scholars, Max Müller, Bueller coming in, translating the the early canon that emphasized asceticism and trying to find a Bible. We've all read this. We've all read Masuzawa, Invention of World Religions. So trying to model Jainism on Protestant um, Christianity. So that is a narrative that we could say, so that means that there was this Protestantization of Jainism. There were all these revivals. And that is true in some sense. For example, in Degumbra Jainism, so there are two main sects of Jainism that I look at in the book. And I hope that's a contribution because I'm trying to compare these two main sects, Degamba and Shvetambara, in a way that a lot of scholars don't do. Often scholars focus just on one sect. Anyway, Degumbra are famous for having nude monks, the, t- the fifth vow of a monk is non-possession. That means move your clothes. But in the medieval period, the Gumber monks had begun to wear clothes. It was only in the late 19th century, early 20th century, scholars were to argue because of the influence of European scholars focusing on the early texts, which say you have to be nude, that they revived the tradition of nude mendicancy. So in some ways that narrative is true. That we do have these reforms because of the influence of European scholars. We do have an increased interest in these early canonical texts that are being the Acharang Sutra, etc., that are being translated by these European scholars. But at the same time, we have this revival of Tantric practices as well. So I think that looking at this component, this, this mantra allows us to maybe see some nuance that we wouldn't if we were thinking of the history of Indian
1: religiosity in terms of these these time periods.
2: That's one way. I think there's a lot of
1: value in this approach. I think you're right. It, it definitely gives you a different perspective and how you might approach just even beginning to look at different aspects, whether it's you know, rituals or what have you. Because like you said, in looking for something almost entirely different, you discovered this overlay with Tantra and Tantric practices by looking at that litany?
2: For, sh- for sure. Another method I use is starting in the present. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, exactly. By framing uh, your analysis in terms of this litany, I read tons of texts that I never would have read before because I didn't start with a text that I had heard of. I started with this litany and I really I incorporated another contribution I hope my book makes is this incorporation of ethnographic research with textual studies, with also the study of material culture. So often I would, and John Court has encouraged this, I would start in the present day with my litany and see what Jains on the ground are doing with with my litany and ask these monks who are trained and have a very specific curriculum they have to work through um, in order to be promoted through the ranks of mendicancy. um, I would ask monks, like, what text should I be, where's my my litany, where's my litany, where's my litany? And that just created, I think, a different project than I would have had if I would have maybe started with a text that, there are a few texts, Dwala Malini Kalpa and Bhairavapad Mahavati Kalpa. These are the two medieval Jain texts that have been marked as the tantric texts in Jainism, because they do promote these esoteric rites using mantras, placement of mantras on the body, worship of these mandalas, these diagrams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if I had started with those texts, I wouldn't have found all these other texts that I found. But I started with the mantra, so I found a bunch of unstudied texts and practices. So yeah, thanks for that question. That's another reason why you should start with something kind of random research. Is on that makes sense.
1: I mean, I feel like this is a very sort of natural segue in, into what I want to ask you next is how would your work and, and this sort of methodology, how would that apply to other areas of religious studies and specifically anyone working outside of Jain studies in particular? How would this work speak to them?
2: Yeah, I think one of the contributions is this approach that tries to, this so-called non-traditional developmental history of Germano, that tries to integrate ethnography and textual studies and material culture by looking at a single ritual common. That's one thing. Another contribution I hope this book makes is the encouragement of the study of minority traditions. Because Jains are famously a minority tradition. They have been since the beginning. Right now, they're less than 1% of the Indian population maybe there are 8 million jains in the world but they have been on the indian subcontinent engaging in all of the developments on the indian subcontinent from the 5th century bce to the present day so if you want to have maybe new understanding of the history of indian religions look through the eyes of Uh, Jane. It's just a little off. If you want an understanding of what the majority traditions are doing, don't read the majority traditions, what they're saying. Read what the minority traditions are doing. If you want to study what Protestants are doing in the West in the 19th century or something, look at what the Mormons are saying, because they're obviously picking up on what Protestants are doing. And they're presenting a very different perspective. And I think that's why the study of Jainism in this case really helps in terms of the category of Tantra because there have been all sorts of debates about who developed Tantra first. Was it Buddhist? Was it Shaivas? Was it Buddhist? Was it Shaivas? People are going back and forth. Let's, let's, uh, let's start with someone else. <laughs> let's not think in terms of sectarian terms. Let's think in terms of a ritual component and understand um, the history of Tantric practices in that way. And then I can argue that it emerges from asceticism. I'll say one more thing. So Steven Yeun is the main character in this um, drama about Korean Americans, Minari. And he had this line in the interview where he says, this is an exact quote, but the Asian American experience is always paying attention to what everyone else is doing, but no one really paying attention to you. And I don't want to compare Jains to Asian Americans, but I at that moment, I thought that's Jainism. They are there everywhere. And they are very perceptive and they offer a different perspective. They do show up in majority texts, but they show up in maybe a a Shaiva text, philosophical text, but as a straw man. And there's a very one-dimensional portrayal of Jainism in the majority texts, whereas I'm not not saying that the majority traditions aren't portrayed in a one-dimensional manner in Jain texts. But asking how they're portrayed in Jain texts, I think, is a helpful exercise. So that's what I would say. Study the minority traditions. Study Native American traditions. If you want to study Protestantism in North Dakota, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Coming back, maybe this will bring this full circle because I said I was really listening to this podcast when I was on the job market. There you go. And, you know, I'm doing all these practice interviews. And one of my mentors said, you know what you should say, because people who study Jainism often have to be defensive. Like, why, why, should, we in, why should we hire you when you study this minority tradition? And one person said, well, you should say it's a bridge between Buddhism and, and Hinduism. And my response was, I don't want Jainism to be a bridge necessarily. I want it to collapse the bridge so that we're all swimming around in the waters below if you look at from this outsider perspective, it's a means by which you can see the construction of these religious categories, which we all know are quite artificial, but also rooted in reality.
1: Yeah. And I wanna loop back to our earlier discussion of your own experiences, learning about Jainism in the undergraduate classroom. Given what you've discussed, I think that this book would be a great resource for many faculty and many students. Whether they're teaching a survey of Asian religions course or specifically a course on Jainism, is there a chapter in particular that you would recommend to someone looking to incorporate this text into their syllabus and in what ways do you think that it would be particularly beneficial for students? Yeah,
2: I would hope that chapter five of my book would be assigned in the classroom because I think it's really accessible. It's all ethnography. It's me sitting with this monk that I owe so much to Acharya Nandikeshwariji, and him explaining to me his daily ritual practice using this this mantra and this mandala on which the mantra is inscribed. This cloth, gorgeous painted diagram. And I think that would be really accessible for students. And again, it will, it's rooted in the modern period. It's not in this moment in the 5th century BCE. And it shows precisely how tantric practices, these meditative practices, are intimately related to ascetic practices. It is a monk doing this. And I think that's important to note because... Often in Buddhist studies, it's it's noted that there's the tantric path to liberation and then there's the monastic path to liberation, wherein you initiate into this practice of mantras or you initiate as a monk. Now, monks can also initiate as tantrics, but it's not the same initiation. And Jain monks get that initiation, the initiation into this ritual practice of mantras and the ascetic uh, initiation at the same time. So that could be very useful. Another thing, though, is just the methodology in and of itself, I think, should be applied to more undergraduate classes. Is choosing a random thing, like a whole class on OM. Tell the history of Indian religions through OM. Rather, and I would say that for, I work um, a lot at the Carlos Museum. I know you're at Emory. So at the Carlos Museum at Emory. And I'm curating an exhibit um, right now with my students on the Avatars of Vishnu. And so I'm thinking about curation of exhibits as well. I think that's a way forward as well. Um, I know uh, Deborah Diamond at Smithsonian now is working on an exhibit on water. You know, start with something like that. Water in Indian religions. Rather than having a course on Tantra or a course on Jainism, course on Hinduism, choose a component outside of that and then get people in conversation with one another. I think that would work well with intro courses in general
1: oh i i think you're absolutely right and hopefully this will be a way in which others doing any type of survey course or those thinking about survey courses they want to offer this would give them a new way of thinking about that and approaching those discourses unfortunately we are out of time and i, I would love to keep talking to you about this but hopefully we'll have you back again very soon but thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: That was great. I'm really thankful that we can take the opportunity at the Religious Studies Project to try to tackle new material. And what's really a relief is after 10 seasons, entering 11 seasons next year, we can still have content that is fresh and new that we have not covered. It just makes me so happy. If you would like to support our work, we would really appreciate it if you headed over to patreon.com slash project rs and give us a small donation. We love coffee. We we love being able to pay for the services that we need to use in order to provide the podcast to everyone for free each week. If you're able to, to give a dollar or $5 or $10 a month to support our work, that would really go a long way to making sure that everybody has access to these items to share in the knowledge that scholars are producing about religious stuff. Studies, we always encourage you to come and join us on facebook or on twitter at project rs and we look forward to your support you can always come to our website religiousstudiesproject.com and use our amazon affiliate links to buy whatever you need toothpaste toiletries books toys planes magazines everything is available for just the regular price and we get a tiny tiny sliver of it which helps us defray the costs of keeping this podcast free to you so until next time we say thanks Thanks for for listening listening. the rsp is sponsored by the basr naasr and the iahr and is produced by the religious studies project association a scottish charitable incorporated organization find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.